All right. Well, welcome to Praxis. It's good to see many of you and to be able to fellowship together over God's Word. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. Uh, this is our Young Adults Singles Ministry. And as a group, we've been studying the Book of Romans, but tonight we will not be doing that because um, Alessandro, our intern, um, he was supposed to speak today, but he got sick, so be praying for him. Um, he let me know Wednesday morning, and um, I, just, I just didn't have enough time to uh, preach on Romans. So we are going to be looking at another passage, but I trust that God's Word is still living and active and can be of much encouragement and benefit to us all. And so um, we will be in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at sanctification. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open them to John 15. Uh, we'll be studying verses 1 to 8. And I thought this would be an appropriate topic just because we've been swimming in the deep end of Romans, a lot of uh, difficult yet rich theology in the doctrine of election and predestination. And sometimes we can be so consumed with uh, figuring this all out and understanding it with our minds conceptually that our hearts remain unchanged. But we must always remember as Christians that the study of God's Word is not just for intellectual stimulation, but so that our hearts would be undone, that we behold the glories of Christ, and to be changed and transformed by God's Word. And that's what we're going to see in our passage uh, tonight. So I'll go ahead and read our section of Scripture. Follow along. Uh, John chapter 15, beginning verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. God, even as we have just read, apart from you, we can do nothing. Even in the approaching your word and seeking to understand it, it is not left up to our mental capacities, our intellect, but to you being gracious, to expose to us the truth the richness of your word, that we might be changed and transformed, that we might be molded into the image of Christ because we are attached to him. Lord, there's a desperation in us that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask that we would commune with you, that we would abide in your word, 
that we would be nourished by Scripture and so built up. Use this time, Lord, in a profitable fashion for your glory and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are certain milestones in a child's development that are worthy of celebrating. And you see it all the time, right, today, in how parents will document these moments. Maybe they'll take a picture of their son's first smile and post it on Instagram. Or they'll record a video when their daughter finally flips over or is able to sit up on her own. They'll invite friends and family members to the first birthday party. And I'm sure many of you have been to these parties where the baby is placed on one side and on the other side are various items representing the kind of career the kid might have in the future. And everyone gathers around to watch, eager to see what the kid will do. And they're cheering and clapping, encouraging this little child to crawl across the room until the little boy or girl reaches for the stethoscope to seal their fate of becoming a doctor. And all the Asian parents are glad, the crowd goes wild, end of birthday party. But imagine how strange it would be if you and I were there and I was jealous over all the attention this kid was getting. So I drop to the ground and start inching forward like a little fast caterpillar, and I announce, look everyone, I too can crawl. Cheer for me, clap for me, I have reached the stethoscope. Now, out of awkwardness, maybe you would humor me and give me a round of applause, but you would be confused to say the least, right? What's going on? Pastor Allen, what are you doing? Are you a baby? That's a rhetorical question, so don't answer that and hurt my feelings. But we all get it, right? No one cheers and claps when an adult crawls. No one's really impressed when a grown-up is doing baby things. In fact, at a certain age, if you're only crawling, that's not an occasion for celebrating, but one of concern. Why? Because over time, growth is expected. And yet, as Christians, we seem to have forgotten this when it comes to spiritual maturity. We treat salvation as the apex of Christian life, and then we're content rejoicing over this huge landmark for the rest of our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. We ought to praise God when someone confesses faith in Christ. But listen, there is a reason conversion is described in the Bible as new birth. Because coming to faith is only the beginning, not the end. Baby Christians are supposed to develop into mature ones. It's expected. And so if you're still in the same spiritual spot five or ten years ago when you first came to faith, then perhaps it is concerning. It might be as troubling as a teenager who still acts like a toddler. That's not an occasion for celebrating. You see, the aim of Christianity is not just conversion, but Christ-likeness. What theologians call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. 
And in our passage tonight, Jesus reveals the mechanics of this, how we grow as believers. We examine first the participants. The participants, if you're taking notes. Now, we know our Bibles well that in the beginning, God planted a garden. And in the Garden of Eden, God planted Adam and Eve to work and watch over the ground. So the first human beings ever created were green thumbs. The story of Genesis continues with God's blessing and commission. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Subdue it. And since that day, the people of God literally grew up with agriculture in their backyard. It was part and parcel to their origin story, to their mandate, to their thinking, to their daily life, so much so that God made it symbolic for them. He gave his people a national emblem. We're familiar with this practice today. The national symbol for the U.S. is the bald eagle a noble, strong creature, a respectable bird for respectable people. England has a lion, just as honorable, fierce, courageous. Canada has a maple leaf, not very scary or majestic, uh, more sweet like the syrup they produce, but it's okay. These national symbols are meant to represent the people. Well, for Israel, their symbol was a vine. Israel's symbol was a vine because it was everywhere. The vine grew and spread throughout their land. It was minted on their currency, on their coins. It was carved and engraved onto their temple. The vine, you see, was Israel's call sign. But notice what Jesus says now in verse 1. He will take on, he will bear the symbol. In Jesus' seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John, he declares, I am the true vine. Why? Well, everyone in Jesus' day knew exactly what he was referring to. You see, the Israelites were a privileged people. They were handpicked by God to showcase how good it is to be in relationship with him. God blessed the Israelites so that they could be a blessing to the nations, as we've been studying in Romans. That by their holy devotion, their righteous living, by the fruit of their lives, all these foreign countries were supposed to be drawn towards them. That the Israelites were supposed to be different. A picture of what it looked like to know, love, and live for the one true God. Yet instead of standing out, they blended in with their pagan neighbors. And God indicts his people. Isaiah 5 describes how God labors over his choice vineyard only to be rewarded with sour grapes. You get the parallel there? That God faithfully cares and attends to his people only to find them disobedient, unfaithful. But here in John 15, 1, Jesus announces he will succeed where Israel has failed. He will be the true vine. He will be the one who showcases to the world how good it is to worship, know, and live for the one true God. To draw others in. He will be the one 
people attach to and abide in for nourishment so that branches produce good fruit. Now we need to back up. We need to ask, what is this fruit? Well, here's a basic definition. It is the supernatural byproduct of relying on Jesus. It's the supernatural byproduct of relying on Jesus. It's the fruit in your life produced from being rooted in Christ. I'll give you a few examples. First is character. Character. You know, everyone, at least at a young age, is taught to be nice. But loving your enemies, as the Scripture teaches, is only possible through trusting Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are the fruit of a life indwelt with the Spirit, grounded in Christ. Secondly, not only character, but conduct. What you actually do, the expression of your character. You see, we're all working and endeavoring for an ultimate purpose. Some for fame, others for financial gain. But only those planted in Christ will labor to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to God. Character, conduct, and lastly, conversion. If you just glance down to verse 16, Jesus says that Christians are to go and bear fruit, and that, interesting enough, that your fruit should also abide. It's curious, but this strongly suggests that the fruit Jesus is referring to is other people. That as ambassadors, you reach out to others so that they too come and experience the fullness of life from the vine of Christ. And they are converted. They are made believers. Character, conduct, and conversion are all Christian fruits produced by being rooted in Jesus. And we have this promise to us, not only because this is what the vine produces, but because this is what the vine dresser is after. That's why this I am statement is unlike all the rest in the Gospel of John. It is the only one where Jesus gives a description about the Father. In this analogy, Jesus is the true vine, people are the branches, and the Father is the vine dresser. And God is intentional. He is focused adamant about fruit. He will not lead the vine to nature or chance. He is intimately involved. Just consider that. Consider the role of a vine dresser. He's always active. He breaks his back tilling the soil. He rises early to water his plants. He stays up late to put up the trellis. He does it for one aim, one goal, one purpose, to see fruit. That's what the vine dresser cares about. Now, those are the players of this scene. And now we move, after being introduced to them, from the participants to the process. The process. And we could break down this point into three sub-points, cutting, pruning, and abiding. That's what makes up God's process of sanctification. First, cutting. And this deals with those who show no sign of life, those who bear no fruit. These are the people who aren't part of the process of sanctification because they aren't saved. We can't put the cart before the horse. The order matters. 
You and I cannot become more like Christ unless you are first saved by Christ. And verse 2 is a clear warning of that. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice what determines how the vine dresser responds. God handles each branch based on the absence or the presence of fruit. If there's no fruit, the branch is deemed dead weight. It's taken up space, so the Father comes and removes it. And verse 6 tells us the fate of such a branch. Cut off, thrown away, cast into the fire, and burned. Jesus is talking about the end that awaits those who aren't genuine Christians. Those who don't abide in him and actually bear fruit. Now I know here at Lighthouse, we're taught well. That you've been instructed over and over again. It's not about what you do, but what Christ has done. That we are saved not on the basis of our works, but Jesus' work on the cross. We believe in salvation by faith alone. Amen. But listen carefully, okay? True faith never comes alone. True faith will show itself in true fruit. I've mentioned this verse, Ephesians 2.8.9, popular one that many of you can quote from memory. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But we must never stop right there and forget to read verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And just look at the end of our passage in John, verse 8. That you bear much fruit. Why? To prove to be my disciples. You see, the presence of fruit is not the basis of salvation. We acknowledge that. But it is the proof of it. And I think this is such a relevant rubric because so many people today plead humility when it comes to discerning the authenticity of someone else's faith. Well, we just don't know their heart. Only God can judge. And if they say they're a Christian, who am I to cast doubt or question them? And yes, that's true to a certain extent. We do want to be slow about drawing premature conclusions. But let's not be naive either. If it doesn't walk like a duck, quack like a duck, or look like a duck, then you have no reason to be confident it is a duck. And in the same, if someone doesn't look like Christ, talk like Christ, live like Christ, if there is no semblance of Jesus Christ, well, then you have no reason to be confident in someone's claim to Christianity. Could they still be a Christian? Maybe. But you have no assurance of it, no evidence of it. So let's not confuse being gracious with being foolish. The absence of fruit should give pause, make you wonder if there's a seed to begin with, whether it's your life or someone else's. 
After all, that's how God measures the legitimacy of someone's profession, by their practice. God evaluates the credibility of faith by the weight of the fruit. Brothers and sisters, take inventory of your own life. One helpful indicator is whether your life looks more like Jesus today than a year ago. Than a year ago. And I use that time frame deliberately because it takes time for fruit to grow. It doesn't sprout up overnight. But in time, fruit should come. There may be a season of barrenness, but not a lifetime. The vine dresser now turns his attention to the fruitful branches. The second sub point is pruning. So we got cutting, now pruning. God is so intent on fruitfulness, he isn't satisfied at the mere presence of fruit. You know, God doesn't just pat the branch bearing fruit and then pass by, like, good job, one apple, you can coast forever now. No, the branch that bears fruit, God prunes it so it produces more, to yield a larger harvest. This is a different kind of cutting for Christians. Vine dressers prune branches to cut away the excess and provide more room for more fruit. Uh, there's a popular A&E show that some of you might be familiar with. It's called Hoarders. Have you guys seen it? It's really fascinating. Uh, the show follows these people who suffer from compulsive hoarding disorder. And so these people can't get rid of old newspaper clippings, food wrappers, or whatever they're obsessed with. And so their house essentially becomes this domestic landfill. One episode featured a lady named Shirley who kept every stray cat in her neighborhood. So just picture that. And as a result, her house was infested with 76 cats. Now I know this is heaven on earth if you love cats. If you don't, this is not heaven on earth. But of the 76 cats, it was later discovered that 35 were dead from being unfed. Every room was cluttered with feces. The carpet and furniture were soaked with urine. This light lady was actually prosecuted for animal cruelty. That's pretty sad. And yet there is an irony to this, right? Her life is a mess because it pains her too much to part from the very thing that is suffocating the life out of her. Well, we can take heart because God will not let his children suffer the same tragedy. He prunes us to clear the way for life, to make room for fruit to abound. And no one denies it hurts. When he snips away at what we cling on to, it is painful. But the pain shows that we have misplaced what we are truly meant to prize. You know, the intense pain we feel when money or people fail us, is an alarm going off that we are treasuring the wrong things, the security of finances or friendships. I mean, just think of this past year or two. Perhaps we have been so preoccupied, obsessed with coronavirus, social justice, elections, and mandates that we have missed 
we have overlooked how God is shearing us so we see and cling to Jesus. To expose how we care too much about current affairs and too little about Christ our King. Is that you? Have you been distracted by just good things even? Now, as God prunes us, we become more like Christ. God prunes us to make room so we grow godly affections, godly aspirations, godly attributes. You see, when we are heckled for our faith or provided an opportunity to share the gospel, we feel our fear of man being cut down so that our boldness in Christ can blossom. When we find our schedules interrupted by an unexpected visitor or just by terrible traffic, we feel our impatience being clipped so a trust in God's sovereignty can sprout. When we're falsely accused at work, misunderstood or wronged by another, we feel our self-righteousness being trimmed so grace might grow in us. And if this is what God is doing, if this is what God is pruning, then let me ask, Christian, what are you permitting in your life? Are you sabotaging the vine dresser? God wants to prune you of impurity, but you refuse to filter what you watch or limit your social media intake. He wants to prune you of your selfishness, but you're too eager to bounce right after church, or you always seem to have an excuse ready for why you can't serve. He wants to prune you of your sin, but you are fine lying to yourself and your accountability partners about your struggles. Praxis, are you working in conjunction with the vine dresser or against him? Look, no one accidentally becomes a godly Christian. Fruit is formed when God cuts into our lives, when he brings about real challenges and trials to whittle away the excess. We learn about what it means to obey Christ and live for him when we are questioned by our colleagues, tempted by the world, or placed in an uncomfortable situation. These are called growing pains. Growing pains. The times when we are sensitized to our sins, our fears, our idols, our convictions, and our hopes. These are the times when faith leads to fruit. Christian, your faith will never triumph if it is not tested. It will only stay theoretical. Faith can only be refined through the fire. And fruit abounds only after pruning, not before it. But brothers and sisters, take heart. The pruning is painful, but it's also a sign of life. Dead branches, dead branches don't feel anything. Pruning is painful, but it's also a sign of his presence. You see, the vine dresser dedicates the most attention when he shears the branch. Otherwise, he might accidentally lop off the entire thing. Trimming requires the vine dresser to come close and be engaged. Contrary to what we assume, the pain doesn't mean he is far away and distant. No, but God can only prune you when he holds you in his hands. Now let's see how God accomplished this 
It says, by the word. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, real fast, Jesus is giving the whole scope of the process. He's linking the point of salvation, clean, with the progress of sanctification, prune. Both salvation and sanctification are achieved through the word. Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do you see how the pruning provides an opportunity for the word? Do you see the dynamic between the the pain that God inflicts with the growth that God brings about? Listen to the great C.H. Spurgeon. He says, Affliction, affliction is the handle of the knife, but the actual knife, the blade, is the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the knife may get at it. Or as C.S. Lewis is renowned for saying, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. There's no denying the pain of pruning causes us to wake up. It prompts us to listen well. Many times we only hear God's voice once we're hurting. And what is the message He's trying to communicate to get across to us. Well, this leads us to our final sub-point, abiding. The pruning teaches us about abiding. Verse 4, Jesus is now ready to teach. And he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you don't have to be sharp to catch Jesus' main point in these verses. In fact, this passage is loaded with that one word, abide, abide. And what's intriguing is that it's actually a command. The image is almost comical. It's as silly as going to the park and yelling at a branch. Don't go anywhere. Stay right there. Abide. But that just goes to show how silly we are as believers. That as Christians, we have to be commanded to remain in Jesus. Why? Well, because abiding is not our go-to plan for getting things done, is it? It's unnatural to us. No, our knee-jerk reaction is to do more, to try harder. When work piles up, we dive in. But Jesus is humbling our proud hearts here. We cannot import the same strategy when it comes to spiritual vitality. Hear how conclusive he is. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't manufacture Christian fruit without abiding in Christ. And if this is what Jesus is teaching, then what does abiding look like? How does this translate into our daily lives? Well, he's already alluded to it in the pruning. And now he is more explicit in the abiding. Just peek at the beginning of verse 7. It says, if you abide in me 
And notice the switch. And my words abide in you. He doesn't say, if you abide in me and I in you, but now he twists it a little, doing a little substitution. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So here's the hint Jesus is offering. He equates abiding in him and he in you with the word. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 shares a lot of the same themes. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Now, abiding isn't some trance-like state where you sit perfectly still to meditate and chant the scriptures like it's some mantra. Abiding isn't something void of activity. Actually, abiding might, act, might require a lot of activity. Abiding, you see, might mean staying up later in prayer, thinking deeper about the word, planning purposefully to fight sin, moving faster to serve people, and working more to honor Jesus. But it all springs forth from a heart trusting in God's word, utterly dependent on him. Abiding is breathing the Bible to commune with Christ. Think of the difference between the power you get from a gas tank versus an electrical socket. With a gas tank, the car is able to run as long as there is fuel in the tank. You can drive around, go from place to place, but once all the gas is gone, the car sputters to a halt. You need to bring it to the station and refuel. Power, you see, is in flux, up and down, full and empty. But with an electrical socket, the power is constant and current. You don't have to worry about it. So long as the device is plugged in, there is an endless supply coursing through the appliance. Now, many of us approach the Christian life with a gas tank mentality. We fill up on a Sunday or even on a Thursday when we go to church, and then we plunge into our Mondays hoping we've got enough gas from the sermon, from the praise, from the fellowship to carry us through the week. But Jesus is teaching the Christian life. The Christian life is more like an electrical socket. We don't come in on Sunday for a pit stop and hope there's enough spiritual boost to, make, to allow us to make it to the next Sunday. We are to be plugged in daily. Sundays are only the culmination of what's supposed to be going on every day. That's why I am very firm when it comes to devotions. Not because I'm all about prescribing some pharisaic legalistic routine where we puff up our pious chest and say, I did it again. You know, I read my Bible 12 day streak. I'm awesome. No, it's because daily devotions, daily devotion matches the contour of Jesus' teaching about our daily desperation. How needy we are. Have we forgotten? We're the lame and the lost. We're blind beggars. We are branches. He's the vine. Praxis, do you wake up feeling this? That apart from Jesus, I cannot honor, obey, love him in my spending, my thoughts, in my words, in my relationships, in my hobbies, in my careers, in my life. That's why I read the Bible, because I need him.
because I want him. Listen to Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know why his mercies are new every morning? Because the mercies of yesterday are not sufficient to sustain you today. You need new mercies, new meditations on the gospel, new musings of how glorious Christ is and why he is worthy to awaken your heart every single morning. And when you abide like this, look at the kind of effect it has upon you, not only inside of you, but what comes out of you. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We reach our last point from the participants to the process and now finally the purpose, the purpose. And here we find prayer. Prayer is one of the clearest expressions of abiding because what else are you doing in praying than being with God? Communication is indispensable to any relationship, right? In the word, God speaks to us. In prayer, we respond speaking back to God. And Jesus declares those who abide in him can be certain to have their prayers answered. That is a remarkable promise. An astonishing guarantee. Sometimes, or a few times, when I tell my kids to do something, they'll repeat it back to me in question form. This doesn't happen as much these days, but when they were younger, I would say, Maddie, you know, go brush your teeth, or Ev, eat your food. And they would echo back, Daddy, should I brush my teeth? Or Daddy, should I eat my food? And it's like, come on, use your brain, right? Like, that's exactly what I just said. Well, what has happened? My words have been internalized in their hearts that they externalize it in their request. Our wills and desires align when they abide in my word. And what they ask for is exactly what I want. So the same with us and our Heavenly Father, with Christians and God. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's an amazing verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, why does this verse always ring true? Because when you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires are conformed to his desires. What you want is what he wants. And that, friends, is sanctification, is it not? And when you abide, he answers because what you pray for are his promises, his purposes. When you ask for the awareness to seek the interests of others, does God not hear his own words in your prayer? Is that not what he desires and reveals in Philippians 2? When you plead for forgiveness for your sins and for the grace to forgive others, will God refuse the very request that Jesus models in the Lord's Prayer? Is that not what he wants? 
When you pray for strength to endure trials, for growth in godliness, for fruit to abound, and for God to be glorified, will he turn a deaf ear to his own voice? Is that not what he has purposed? The words are right there in our text, this last verse. This is the purpose, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In the craft coffee scene, uh, there are a few places that will offer coffee cupping. Um, I don't know if they still do. Um, but they did back then. It used to be a trend, coffee cupping. I know it sounds weird, but it's just a snobby name for tasting. That's all it is. And you go and you get to try a number of coffee beans from different regions of the world. And these baristas and roasters, they'll lead you through this magical divine experience by having you sniff an assortment of coffee grounds. And then they will brew those exact same grounds so that you can taste it. And you're told to slurp it up, to swirl it in your mouth, allow it to spread across your tongue so that you get the full range of flavors. They'll instruct you to try to pick up on the body and aroma, acidity of that particular bean. Maybe it's the chocolate notes of a coffee from Brazil or hints of blood orange from a Kenyan coffee. And it's all very pretentious. Um, But throughout the whole event, you can't help but have that sense that that impression um, cast upon you, that you are participating in something reserved and special. I mean, why else call it a coffee cupping when it's really just tasting? There's an air of elitism to the whole experience. Why? Well, because these baristas and roasters, they take great pride in their trade, in their labor, in their work. They have spent a lifetime fine-tuning, dialing it in, perfecting the best technique to extract the most sublime flavor from this little fruit, a small coffee bean. They have invested time, money, effort, blood, sweat, and tears into their craft. To what end? So that when people sip on a cup of coffee and they're blown away and they remark, this is amazing, these workers beam with honor and receive glory for the fruit of their labor. How much more so God? He has invested time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears. And you better believe he takes great pride in the fruit of his labor. And we can find much comfort and confidence knowing that God is passionate about fruitfulness. It gives us hope that God promises and purposes our sanctification. That this is not something we strive for on our own. He desires it so much that he stakes his name and takes ownership of his vine, his branches, his fruit. This is why he sent his son to ransom and redeem a people for himself. This is why he sends his spirit to guide and conform us to his image. This is why he prunes the believer, reveals himself in the word, gifts us the privilege of prayer, and enfolds us into the church so that we would continue to stir and stimulate one another to bear fruit for the glory of his name. And by grace, as we abide in him, we will and so prove to be his disciples. Let's pray. God, what a marvelous passage. 
because it not only devastates us with how weak and insufficient we are, but because it doesn't leave us there. But it launches us towards the one who is sufficient, who is almighty, who has died on our behalf and who has welcomed us should we repent and believe that we can abide in Christ. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. But in Christ, Lord, we are wielding your power, your promises, your purposes. And so we pray that your word would indeed cut us to the core, expose us of the ways that we have been proud, of the ways that we have been trying to work upon ourselves by our own abilities. And as we have endeavored in a futile uh, pursuit, Lord, we pray that we would cast ourselves upon you, that we would cling to your word, that we would cherish the gospel, that we would prize Christ. And in beholding him, we become more and more like him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.